podcast by me, Lydia Ashman, in which I chat to people about how they've coped and grown during difficult times. In this final doorstep chat of the season, and perhaps forever, I speak to Emma Cummins, my close friend, writer, reader and copywriter, about how nurturing a creative practice can help us to navigate transitions, connect with ourselves and lead an honest life. Emma generously shares how she has turned to writing in times of grief, both after losing her father in 2013 and more recently with an open letter to her late uncle and brilliant artist, Peter McConville. A letter Emma began in March 2020 after receiving news of his terminal diagnosis and as a way to connect with him across the Atlantic. We talk about how lockdown has engendered the difficult but ultimately freeing process of accessing deeper emotional recesses and tears and how that's impacted Emma's writing and inspired by poet Yonyi's theory that the way we treat our writing is the way we treat ourselves, Emma shares how she's built more kindness, flexibility and rest into her writing practice and into her life. Finally, we explore how giving ourselves permission to be who we are through writing and any creative practice can ultimately us more content. In Emma's case this has been through embracing her Northern Irish accent and seeking out writers who've given her the confidence to do so. During the episode Emma reads extracts from two pieces, her letter to her late uncle Peter and Up the Town, a short story based on Emma's experience of the explosion of a car bomb in Brambridge, Northern Ireland in August 1998. Thank you so much for listening and I hope you enjoy this doorstep chat. Hi Emma, it's wonderful to be chatting with you on this very warm Saturday afternoon in June. How are you? I'm very well and very excited about this this chat. Thank you for having me. Me too. I've yeah, been wanting to chat with you a long time. And just to, to say like how we met, it's, it's quite an interesting story. So we were set up um, in 2013 by our mutual friend Steve Taylor so so big shout out to Steve. We love Steve. Forever <laughs> grateful um, to him for introducing me to to the lovely Lydia. <laughs> I guess he noticed that we were talking to him about similar things like art and urbanity and visual culture and he had a feeling that we might get on and and have a lot in common and his intuition was correct and I was reflecting on our friendship and I and both of us as writers and our our sort of practices and I think both of us have sort of gained more confidence in our writing over the time we've known each other and sort of I think we've been on a bit of a similar journey in terms of realizing like the pull to the page is much more about well is about creative expression but also a lot more and I think it'll be really interesting to talk about some of those things today. Definitely and I wondered if you would mention our um, being set up by Steve because it's uh, you know if you meet a new partner or something they talk about their their meet cute I'm doing inverted commas (laughs) meet cute moment and I feel like that was our meet cute moment that we um, I think we'd certainly been in the same room as each other but we'd never been formally introduced and I think we individually to Steve, like you said, have been talking about very similar things. And Steve is a great, you know, a great conversationalist and also someone who is brilliant at bringing people together. And I was working, he was bar manager at the time as he still is. And I was working for him and uh, spending long evenings in, in Shoreditch serving pints to people and you know, getting to know Steve very well. And he was quite insistent, actually, about uh, introducing us. And, I, you know, I, I don't think you'll mind me saying that 2013 was a difficult year for, for both of us. We both had um, major transitions in our life. For me, I lost my dad. You know, he died after uh, a terminal illness of about seven to eight years. And um, just you saying there, 2013... I couldn't quite remember what the year was, but I, I was pretty sure it was that year. And I know you had had some uh, major life transitions as well. And I think what was interesting was that neither of us really talked about those things so much. 
at the time we had talked about both of our experiences a lot as we got to know each other better but really our friendship the foundation of our friendship was really from shared interests and we and great conversations and going to galleries and sharing books and talking about things that we loved really and I think at that time for me and that very strange early stage of the grieving process yeah it was wonderful to meet to meet a new friend yeah definitely and I and I agree like I think a hallmark of our friendship is our conversations we sort of call them writing and live chats and I think that's a kind of the theme of what I wanted to talk to you about today because I think the writing practice a creative practice I've learned is is totally holistic and it's not just like one little siloed part of your life but before we we get into the to the the meat of it I wanted to ask you um, about your metaphorical doorstep and where you are in the world today. Yes, thank you. Um, so right now I am in Hackney. Technically it's the fifth floor, but the flats are two stories. So it's probably 10 stories up um, with wonderful views of, of London. And I've lived here for, in this particular flat for about seven years, but I actually have to move out in a few weeks. And I'm going to be moving back to Ireland so it's interesting that you know we've, we've been keen to do this this conversation for a little while now but in the context of what this podcast is about navigating difficult times and change I feel like I'm in a very transitional stage so you know the room next door is full of boxes and um, my bookshelves are slowly becoming more bare and soon I'm going to have to take the photographs down from the walls so yeah that's where I am at the moment on a slightly transient doorstep and I wanted to ask you if you could introduce yourself in terms of your writing practice and I wondered if you could share like a little history about how your writing has developed and kind of where you are now with it. Sure I suppose I, I got into writing initially as kind of a, you know a teenager and in my early 20s I was reviewing art exhibitions and occasionally reviewing books, but, but mostly art exhibitions. And I studied art and art history, and then I went to Goldsmiths to study a master's in visual culture and um, got very into art theory, critical theory about art, about capitalism, about the way we live, and also doing quite a lot of group projects that involved texts. So maybe writing some text that would accompany an art exhibition. And um, I, if I'm being honest, circling back to 2013, you know, when my dad died, there's a, I think something common that happens and I think has also happened during this pandemic is that it can become more difficult to write and read during the process of, of grief. And I became more and more drawn towards fiction and in particular the short story form during that time. I'd, I'd always enjoyed fiction, but I, it just, it seemed to be the, the most joyful or helpful or most accessible thing I suppose to read in, in that time of grieving. And I was working at The Guardian at the time for their, their learning program and one of the the main parts of my job when I first started was to um, assist writers with their writing courses. So people like Ross Raisin, for example, um, and various sort of well-known writers. And on, I think it was a Monday evening or something. My job was to, to help Ross with some photocopying and generally just being a kind of welcoming staff member at The Guardian. And and what happened each week was that I was meeting people who were coming in after their day jobs who were writing novels and short stories. And in the most cliche way, way possible, I started to feel this, this sense of finding a tribe that um, and I had never in my life considered writing fiction or felt, to be honest, that I was worthy of it. I thought it was kind of this rarefied thing that special people do or something because fiction meant so much to me you know 
And, but I think meeting these sort of, I suppose, amateur writers really, as opposed to, you know, published novelists, um, made me feel like it was something that I might be able to do. And I started writing a few short stories and I signed up for, actually, I created a 12 week course with, with Ross Raisin, which was kind of what, and then I attended it. And, um, and we had, I think, 12 people in the group sort of absolute beginners to fiction and I started sharing some of my fiction and it was terrifying and I I remember the first time sharing a piece of fiction and I'm sure you will relate to this because you've been to a lot of workshops too it was the most exposing and destabilizing and exciting experience to share something that was both so personal but also something that I had created and I got really positive feedback from other writers in in the group who find the writing entertaining there were some bits that were a bit funny some bits that were a bit moving and that really sort of spurred me on um and then just briefly since then I've sort of been moving in between occasionally doing reviews most notably for the quietest where I write um or I have written sort of about books and art um at the moment I'm really focused on on fiction um, I sort of have a novel and a few short stories that I'm working on simultaneously and they nearly always have some kind of autofictional aspect to them. Um, they're often, there's a heightened drama that sort of maybe um, moves them into the realm of fiction, but I do write a lot from my own life experience. Thank you so much for, for sharing it. And it's really interesting to hear you reflect on the last eight years as well, because obviously I was there, but yeah, hearing your kind of um, narration of it is, is yeah, it's interesting to, because I remember when you did that course with Ross and that sort of, sh well, I remember when, once we met up and you were like, I think I'm writing a novel. <laughs> <laughs> What's going on? <laughs> so thinking about kind of, the last year and and writing I wanted to bring in as well as working your novel and and your short fiction a significant piece you've written and published in the last 12 months is an open letter to your late uncle um Peter McConville who was a brilliant and and well-known painter who died last year and it's a really moving and beautiful piece of writing like it paints a really vivid picture of Peter and his work and your relationship with him and your big and I think you say big and brilliant Irish family who I've had the pleasure of meeting some members of and also like it goes into your evolution and development as a writer and artist as well as sort of speaking of loss like as you mentioned your father and your uncle and like your cousin Kathy so there's lots in there I'm sure a lot of the themes will resonate with people, particularly over the last year. And it evolved over quite a long time. And I remember I was privileged enough to read an early version and um, you started it last March and published in February, 2021. And can you talk a little bit about your reasons for writing and, and sharing that piece? Of course, yes, and thank you for being, I think my earliest reader, if I remember correctly, because yeah, you're right. I think like everything I write, it seems to take quite a long time. Um, but I'm a big redrafter. You know, I, I believe writing is rewriting and I I think I get closer to what I really want to say the, the longer I kind of sit with the piece. Um, but yes, in response to your question, the letter, I started writing the letter, I think it was a day or two after St. Patrick's Day. So just a few days really before the, the lockdown started on the 23rd of March. And my uncle had been ill for, for a long time, sadly with various health conditions, um, but uh, particularly with, with cancer. And we heard, as I said, sort of around St. Patrick's Day that he had pancreatic cancer. So yeah, I had to come to terms very quickly with both this, this sort of terminal diagnosis and also the fact that I wouldn't see him again in, in person. So Peter lives, oh sorry, he lived in, in Canada in Winnipeg, but he's, he's from Northern Ireland like me. And um, yeah, with the lockdown and the pandemic, 
of course, we were discouraged from traveling and my mum had been keen to get over to see him. My mum wasn't able to see him either. So another thing to mention as well, his, his hearing had diminished, you know, over the course of his life. So he's wearing hearing aids. So um, my way of processing a lot of things is, is through words. So writing to him seemed very urgently like something that I, that I wanted to do. But also it felt like something that would be accessible to him given his sort of health condition and the way that it's written there are like quite short sections and paragraphs and I you know I don't know if he read it start to finish or if he read it in little sections but it, I did have him in mind in the way it was sort of formatted and um, another thing to mention just briefly as I said earlier I, I think in these times of grief, whether it's personal or collective grief, writing and reading can become more difficult for a lot of people. And I had certainly felt that I'm a real, you know, I'm a real bookworm. I read, you know, every day and I write some, a lot of the time every day, if not most days, it might just be the little snatches or longer sessions of writing. And that, I felt like that had been taken away from me. I knew it was temporary but it had been mostly taken away from me during that early stage of the pandemic in March and April. And writing this letter to my uncle, writing directly just to one person, and writing sentence by sentence, and just taking my time with it, really helped to open up my own writing again. And I suppose it's something that I might, you know, if not, if not recommend, at least encourage this process of letter writing, you don't necessarily have to send it to the person, but I think the focus of just writing to one person can really ease the whole writing process and just create a naturalness, the familiarity of a letter, the informality of a letter and the, the kindness and the love, I think that to, to sit down and take the time to write to one other person is really lovely. And, um, Peter read the letter and yeah, I, I know he told me it meant a lot to him and he really enjoyed it. And I, I could not have got across what I wanted to say to him on the phone or in any other format, I think. So there's quite a lot from the letter, like the themes from the letter, particularly about kind of being an artist that I want to, to dive into. But I wonder if you would like to share a little bit from it. Yes. I would love to. So I'm reading probably from about a third down the letter where I, after I've explained that I had to come to terms with the fact that I wouldn't be able to see Peter in person. And I'll just read from there. So I decided to write you a letter instead, build a bridge of words. Hearing about your diagnosis was upsetting but laced through the sadness were bright memories of our big, brilliant Irish family. During lockdown, the past was more soothing than the present, writing to you unearthed memories, the wee stories, the loss, the love. Before starting the letter, I'd been finding writing more difficult than usual. I was still working on my novel, but progress felt sluggish, uninspired. I started to write a little bit less, and read a little less too. But after hearing about your illness, the urge to write was strong and urgent. Each day I wrote to you, sometimes several pages, some days just a sentence. In the weeks I slowly wrote this letter, the magic happened. You know what I mean. Alongside writing to you, my novel started to flow again. I wrote scenes that surprised me and I couldn't help but smile. Last year, I read a book called The Gift by Lewis Hyde that I know you'd enjoy. I don't have the book here in Northern Ireland, so I'll paraphrase two of his ideas. First, creating art is often motivated by gratitude. Second, if you dedicate yourself to an art or craft, it will give you gifts. These gifts are often a piece of art that feels like you didn't make it. The author George Saunders alludes to this idea in an interview where he says that with writing, magic 
has to be the operative word. Getting the pros to go somewhere and do something you couldn't have foreseen at the outset. Saunders goes on to say, when self recedes, there is something else that rushes in to replace it. And that thing is smarter and kinder and just more trustworthy than self. In The Gift, Hyde illustrates the magic brilliantly using the folk story, the shoemaker and the elves, where a cobbler dedicated to his craft is struggling to make some shoes. In the night, we elves come to help them, finishing the shoes with skill and care while the shoemaker is sleeping. That the shoemaker is asleep shows us something about creativity. Writing is of you, but it's not you, says Saunders. The elves are the shoemaker's subconscious. Of equal importance is the ending of the story where the shoemaker creates shoes for the elves, simultaneously expressing gratitude and displaying a mastery of his own craft. Hyde suggests that people often make art to thank the person, but equally they can be motivated by a generalized gratitude for all the art that's enriched their lives. Reflecting on the gift, I realized how grateful I am for the wellspring of art that's enriched my life. I also appreciated how lucky I am to have known your paintings since I was a little girl. Writing to you, I often thought of your beautiful paintings of rivers, such as the series River City, inspired by a stay at St Boniface Hospital. In a video interview, you talked about coming round after major surgery for cancer and drawing in your hospital bed. When I was really dying, I would draw myself, you said, but I also had to walk. So I'd walked down the hallway and there was this great view, this huge window, and my goal was to get to that goddamn window. And I could see the river, I could see the forks. I don't know, it just gave me hope. Through the window, you photographed the river and in your hospital bed, you made sketches. When you were allowed back home, you worked on new paintings in your studio, developing the series River City. I love these strange shimmering paintings. Through the glass, the river is dreamlike. These landscapes are not like paintings, you said. There's a lot of hope in them. I agree there's something more to these landscapes, something that can't be understood, but still longs to be known. To borrow from the philosopher Francis Bacon, the landscapes of River City deepen the mystery of art. In their shimmering blues and golden lights, there's movement and there's magic. Thank you so much. It's, I've read that piece well in different iterations a few times, but it's really lovely to hear you reading part, that part of it in, in your own voice. So thank you for sharing. I guess like one of the things I was interested in, and something I've learned whilst I've developed as a writer as this sort of challenging this idea of a myth of the artist life where somebody is a special chosen being with like innate talent and that kind of inspiration strikes and then a person is prolific. And, uh, and I think I used to sort of try and like fit into that or, or see if I was that or not. I've learned that writing is so much more than getting words on a page. And like you describe just then in terms of Peter's stay in the hospital, it's really about being attuned in many ways, I think, and staying, staying in touch with ourselves and with others and the world. And like the pandemic has been a bit of a hot house for this engagement. <laughs> yes. <laughs> because, I totally agree. Because we just haven't had the same distractions and we've sort of been forced in a lot of ways to look inward. And yeah, I just wondered if you had any reflections on that idea of, of how the pandemic has affected our kind of engagement and maybe your um, writing practice as well. Yeah, thanks for that. That's a really good question. And the thing that I automatically think of in terms of our friendship is that we have both found ourselves living alone for a, a good amount of, of the past year for, for various reasons. And I think, like so many of these things, it's double-edged because I think that time and space to look inwards has been very helpful 
for self-reflection for my life. But I also, I mean, I just remember just saying that there's a piece on the stinging fly by a brilliant Northern Irish writer called Sean O'Reilly. And I'm pretty sure he, I'm uh, paraphrasing him, but he says something like, as a, the quality of your writing depends on the quality of your introspection. And that always really stuck with me, that idea. And we have been given a lot of time for introspection <laughs> recently, especially those of us who've had to live alone. And I think it has helped me to make some life decisions it has helped to enrich some aspects of my writing but that is not to say by any means that either of those processes have been easy I feel in quite a good place with it at the moment because I have made certain decisions both creatively and, and personally in terms of life decisions but my god there are several months trying to tune in for that that intuition and this echoey house where I was only allowed to leave the house maybe once and it was very cold and um you know many days I didn't leave the house at all and I think I've been able to access deeper recesses of myself maybe one way of putting it and deeper emotions to be honest you know I, I have cried more in these past six months than I ever have in my entire life and that has been a very difficult process but it's also been very free in, in many ways. And someone said to me recently that, you know, crying can actually be a great gift because it's wordless expression. And I thought, oh, wow, that, that means something to me. And funnily enough, after I heard this idea from someone, I, um, I looked back on something that I've written. I had pretty much said the exact same thing about wordless expression. And for me, as someone who processes the world through words as a really kind of dedicated reader as someone who uses language as part of her day job and you know I do copywriting I work in the books industry I send a lot of emails you know I I do feel like I navigate the world a lot through language this wordless expression of crying has opened something up in me as as a person and as a writer, I think, and, I, and in some ways, I'm actually quite excited about that. And it's not necessarily that my writing is now going to become super, super sad. You know, if anything, it might even become a little bit lighter. And um, just briefly, I, I watched the Pixar movie Inside Out a couple of nights ago. Have you seen this movie? Is this the one where there's the characters who are emotions in the young girl's heads? Exactly. Yeah, I have seen that a couple of times. So good. It's a brilliant movie, and I mean, hopefully, most of your listeners have already seen it. But if they haven't seen it, it's really worth watching. And you know, there's no spoilers here. But the uh, the best character is Badness. Um, you know, there's Joy is actually the most annoying character, and she often kind of gets in the way of things. And rewatching that that film reminded me that you know we need sadness and sadness is uh, an extremely important human emotion. Uh, of course, it can become problematic if it, if it takes over for a prolonged period. But I think the pandemic has allowed a lot of us to maybe feel some sadnesses that we may have blocked due to the, the busyness of our day-to-day -day lives. Perhaps in particular, you know, in some ways, a sort of London lifestyle where we're always kind of rushing around Thanks for being so honest about your tears. And as someone who cries a lot, like it's, yeah, it, it's, it's easy to think of crying as a sort of weakness, but actually it's like an import, as, a, as an important way of expressing yourself and sadness as well. And yeah, I think we've all been like nose to nose a little bit more with our emotions and maybe um, in ways that, uh, like you say that the sort of intensity of them is can be quite confronting and, and difficult and I think how you respond to those emotions is really important and like whether you sort of try and push them away or block them off or, or sit with them and I watched a, a talk with a poet a critic and a poet called Yon Yi and he writes an, he writes an advice column for writers so his talk was very, it was very soothing to watch. And 
she said that the way we treat our writing is the way we treat ourselves. Mm. That's very perceptive. Yeah, so I think we've had like a lot of conversations about how in lockdown and, and in the pandemic, we've sort of developed maybe our sense of self-care and, and how we sort of live our life to, not just to support our writing practice, but with that in mind. And I also went to another talk by Catherine May and we've, <laughs> we've both, met, well, you introduced me to her book, Wintering, which I've kind of lent out to a lot of people and bought for people. But she, she was saying um, in order to support her writing, she, she makes decisions that enable her to think good quality thoughts. Mm. So there's this whole like connectedness between I think decisions and choices you make around how you live that feed into your writing. Yeah, I wanted to ask, maybe in particular in terms of the pandemic, what writing has maybe taught you about looking after yourself? Before the lockdown, I was a bit of a, a strict master with, my, with myself. And I don't mean master in terms of skill, I mean like cracking the whip um, in terms of getting my, my writing done my minimum is working on it like five days a week. And I, I don't mean five full days. I mean, you know, maybe an hour or two each day. But most of the time I was doing it every day. And um, I was too strict with myself. And I actually don't think it served my writing very well. And I, um, I, have, I often listen to interviews with writers. And there are many writers out there who do benefit from writing every day and having, you know, reasonably kind of like strict or structured regime. Um, in terms of getting the work done and that's fine but I think it's really important to tune in to what works for you as as a person and I I actually think what has happened for me personally during lockdown is that I've loosened the reins a bit on my my writing practice and I'm making more time for other things in in my life so for example I've been doing a bit of pilates I've never done that before and Cooking as well, spending, I've always enjoyed cooking, but spending more time cooking, looking at recipes, inventing little recipes, I suppose, just purely for, for myself um, or if I, you know, if I have someone over. But yes, being kinder to myself and allowing myself time to, to rest. And I'm really glad you mentioned that, that book, Wintering by Catherine May. And um, this idea of wintering you know, she uses winter, but really it can happen in, in any season, points in your life where you really need to rest and retreat, hibernate, recoup, and maybe just like potter around the house a little bit. And, um, you know, maybe, maybe you do continue some creative work, whether that's art, whether it's writing, whether it's cooking, whether it's making music or learning something, a craft. But also I think just allowing yourself not to be productive, to sleep if you need to and this process of rest can really actually serve your creative work very very well because I think if we give ourselves enough time to rest we can as we were discussing earlier maybe access certain parts of our ourselves that we can then use creatively but also we don't have to do that we can just let rest be rest completely unproductive and be okay with that. And I think that's one of the gifts that the pandemic has given us all in, in some ways, if we allow ourselves to receive that, that gift, you know, that, you know, we live in this capitalist society that privileges productivity and money and these sort of markers of social status. But really the pandemic is just stripping us back to our basic humanity really again this is I feel like this is a lesson that you can take from writing practice into your life is that it's, it's not about hitting a formula that you do all the time and you stick to you kind of there is some gentle discipline needed sometimes on when you really don't feel like it and, and kind of coaxing yourself to the page but to sort of say I'm always gonna write this much this time um, without sort of tuning into yourself and where you're at 
is is not always helpful although I know some writers do work more like that but I think it it can be counterproductive to kind of force yourself into these like ways of working that might serve you for a little bit but you might have to change them and that's that's okay and I wanted to talk a little bit, bit about writing kind of honesty or authenticity. I guess like in my own writing practice, it was kind of a year and a half ago, I just launched my project, Something I Learned, which was sort of my kind of wanting to explore creative nonfiction and first person experiences. And that kind of more or less coincided with, with the pandemic. So for me, I've been writing quite um, openly about, I don't know, things like loneliness and, and connection I've experienced in lockdown and dates I've been on and um, piece of water near my house. And I found it, like you were saying and kind of earlier, like the vulnerability in doing that is, is scary, but it's also sort of electrifying in, in other ways. And there was a quote from a book called Writing Down the Bones, um, that you can't go deeper into your writing and then step out of it, clamp down, go home, be nice and not speak the truth. If you give yourself over to honesty in your practice, it will permeate your life. That is the challenge to let writing teach us about life and life about writing, let it flow back and forth. And I just find that quote so powerful it, and it really speaks to me in terms of finding my own writing voice and trying to take steps in the world to live a life that feels more honest to myself um, and I feel like that's something you've experienced as well maybe and you wrote a brilliant essay called A String of Pearls in the Quietus I think it was a few years ago now 2018 and you referenced a lot Deborah Levy's memoir The Cost of Living and I know Deborah's one of your writing heroes and she kind of is one of mine like as you've given gifted me some of her books and she's definitely written so well about through writing being herself or getting to know herself and and not compromising on that so yeah I just wanted, wondered if you could speak a bit about that process of open yourself up with your writing and maybe the relationship between your sense of self and, and your writing voice. Yeah, that the cost of living is incredible, but wow. And one thing that is so impressive about Deborah Levy, I think in general, is that she says so much through so few words, which is so impressive to me at, at the level of craft. Um, and just as you were speaking, I remembered a very memorable section in that book where she talks about her encounters with one of her writing students. So Deborah Levy is teaching at university and a, a woman is, I think, writing on a novel or writing her own novel. And she shared excerpts and there are some birds in the background that, as Levy describes, are, are sort of shouting over the, the writer's powerful voice. And she, the, the writer sort of reworks the, the piece in various ways and her, her voice comes through more, more powerfully and as you say, authentically and truthfully. And Deborah Levy says that her hands were shaking as she was reading out this, this powerful truth of, of her own voice. And um, what the words you use there, it can be quite electrifying actually to speak in your inner voice because let's face it, in daily life we have personas at work you know with we'll speak differently with family as we do with friends as we do with someone on a date or with a partner and you know that's fine that's that's part of life but I think the more we can be authentic to the truth inside ourselves for me personally I, I feel like I've just got gradually happier as I've gotten older and I'm sure part of that is just getting older because you know yourself more and I certainly wouldn't want to do my 20s again <laughs> um, but I do think writing has really been really helpful for me in terms of like self-acceptance and one aspect of that 
is uh, my accent as, as a Northern Irish person. And I suppose I could speak very briefly about that. And I'm, what I'm gonna say, I'm saying wholeheartedly because it is it's truthful. I think the Northern Irish accent is one that can quite commonly and easily be, be mocked or, or mimicked. And, you know, that can happen with a lot of different accents from around the world. It's certainly not specific to, to Northern Ireland. But I think what I did often when I moved to England, 18, so I lived in Newcastle for maybe six years and then moved to London. And I would often preempt jokes about my accent. So how I might say char or par or are, or the name hard. And I would get in front of that, sometimes with strangers, but often with certain people, they were nearly always English, who I knew would make little friendly jokes in the same way that you would banter with your friends about you know, certain vulnerabilities in, in your friends, because sometimes that can make light of certain things. But I think as I've gotten older, I've realised that I, I gain a lot of power and actually a lot of happiness from just accepting my voice as it is and not, not making fun of it and, and actually sort of gently... Um, gently retorting when someone does laugh at how, at how I speak and but without losing my sense of humor about it you know I think one brilliant thing about the Irish in general is is their sense of humor so I never want to get to get rid of that um but I think what's happened in my 30s in particular in my writing and most sort of powerfully really in, in my fiction is embracing my Northern Irish accent. And I've written a few stories and sections of a novel from the perspective of a sort of 12 year old Northern Irish girl. Sometimes that, that is me. It's a, it's a piece of like memoir, auto fiction. And sometimes it's a fictional character with kind of shades of me from that, that time in my life. And it's been that authenticity, as you say, or that sort of naturalness in the prose has really opened something up for me in the most exciting and moving way to just em embrace that part of myself. Because I think there is a tendency sometimes when Irish people move to England, I'm doing very commas here, to kind of anglicise their accents. And you know, that can happen when an English person moves to Ireland, they take on you know, an Irish accent. It, it works both ways, but I'm trying to, um, you know, not do that in a conscious way and to allow my voice to be as it is. And the more I do that in my writing, I think the more I'm able to do that in, in my life. And I feel happier. I think when you, there are aspects of yourself that you try and hide or um, ignore, in your writing and in your in your life and your relationships it's, it's quite tiring and and ultimately futile and I think I think the page can be quite safe it can be quite scary I think to explore those things on the page even if no one else is going to read them but it, it is also quite a safe space for you to start bringing those things out into a bit more of a light and and it totally makes sense that it that it makes you more content because you make more fully who you are and I, I think I think I've found as well not that it's about what other people think um or external validation but people have responded to my writing in a different way when I've been kind of more honest and I suppose vulnerable with it. So I think it can also make your writing more powerful. I completely agree. And um, I, I think on a personal level, one thing that's really helped, and I think all writers will have their, their own version of this. I've been reading a lot of Northern Irish 
writers over these this past few years and for some people it might be reading more women for some people it might be reading about the place they're from or possibly things to do with gender or sexuality you know seeking out voices in terms of aspects of ourselves that we have possibly repressed or want to explore further or celebrate more openly and um, for me personally there's been a few really brilliant writers that have really just like helped me and brought me a lot of joy and I suppose the, the key book and I know you've read Milkman as well by, by Anna Burns which won the Booker Prize must have been 2019 I think um, what an incredible insight into a young Northern Irish woman at, at the height of the troubles and the this psychological dis dissonance really between her lived experience and her her mind and the social the, the violence of the social setting that, that she was in and the the tendency towards gossip and and rumors and sort of accusations and, and all that kind of stuff but I think what she she captured she did something amazing in that book by capturing the truth of the psyche of a young Northern Irish woman. And in a way that felt sort of very authentic. And one thing that she does in that book is she often repeats herself sometimes within the same sentence, which is very true to how Northern Irish people speak. And um, there's a lot of dark humor um, and she, sort of reaches a stage where she almost doesn't believe her own her own mind and it's just a stunning piece of work and then a few um short story collections uh multitudes by lucy caldwell which i know i can see you nodding along on the on the zoom call um you also really enjoyed she writes that that sort of northern irish teenage girl experience nostalgic for me because you know, that, that was really my, my adolescence as well. And Wendy Erskine, uh, fabulous short story writer with a book called Sweet Home, published by The Stinging Fly. And she, she just captures the, the unvarnished, unpretentiousness of the Northern Irish voice, which I actually think is quite distinct from the Irish voice, certainly in short story writing. And, you know, for me, as you know, Lydia, Kevin Barry is one of my my writers alongside uh, Deborah Levy, and I really hold Kevin Barry on, on a very high pedestal, um, especially in terms of his short story writing. But his his prose is ornate, and it has a bit of a swagger to it. And it's there's a huge amount of skill and, and style and pizzazz in his his writing. And if you compare that to someone like Wendy Erskine, there's almost like this deadpan kind of kitchen sink naturalness to it. But it's just as funny and just as brilliant. And it's, it's really exciting to me to see this sort of wellspring of uh, new Northern Irish writers, especially uh, female writers com coming through in, in recent years. And, and Derry Girls has been fantastic, I think, for just Northern Ireland in general, but, but anyone who's trying to make creative work, be it writing, art, documentaries, I think the the authenticity, as you say, of, of Dairy Girls and the specificity of it. You know, James Joyce famously said, in the particular is universal. And the more you kind of tune into the, the reality of being a Dairy Girl, you know, it doesn't matter where you're from in the world, you connect to the, this, the particularness of, of that as a human being. And it's a very exciting time, I think, for Northern Irish writing um would you like to um read a little bit of rock the town which is a short story you, you worked on yes what i'm going to do is read a little bit from the introduction of my short story up the time i'm going to skip about a third or more of the story and then just cut to, to a little bit later up the time before we left Lisa's house, we'd each been given a tenner. I'm getting pencils, I said, and a new sketch pad. I'm getting a beanie baby, said Beth. Me too, said Lisa. There's a Princess Diana one out. We all wanted ice cream. 
Beth and Lisa also wanted gravy chips from Country Fried Chicken. On the way home, we decided we'd stop to get sweets. The day was warm. Well, warm for Banbridge. On the walk into town, my legs were sweating in my black and white cap of bottoms. I should have been wearing shorts like Beth and Lisa, but Dad always shouted when I used his razor and I wasn't allowed my own one. Walking behind Beth and Lisa, I noticed their bobs were the same length. They had the same navy Adidas shorts, the same shoulder slumped stride. Above them, the slush puppy sky and flags with the red hand of Ulster. Outside the ice cream shop, we licked cones of whipped vanilla, helter-skelter with strawberry sauce. Maureen from the swimming pool was getting out of her car, her Union Jack key ring made out of metal. All right, girls, said Maureen. All right, I said. Where are your mums today? At home. We're going up the time. I said the words casually, tilting my head towards the high street, but inside my lungs swelled. It was our first time up the time on our own and I couldn't help but smile. On the deep window ledge outside Country Fried Chicken, Beth and Lisa ate gravy soaked chips. Woke, I said, they look like slimy slugs. Lisa looked at me. What's that round your neck anyway? It's a mood stone. Lisa laughed. Hear that, Beth? Mystic Megs of the time. As Beth and Lisa ate their chips, I took on my pencils and sketch pad. In front of us was a dirty red car with smeared windows. That car looks weird, I said. Oak, said Lisa, seeing the muddy red paintwork. I opened my sketch pad, started drawing, soft at first, just getting a sense of it, then the arch of the roof, the angles of the wing mirrors. As I worked, there was the dry scratch of lead. What sort of person would drive that car? I added a man in black, smoking a cigarette, then lightly shaded the windscreen until it looked like stretched black wool. Beth looked at my drawing of the dirty box all. You're good at drawing from life. Lisa leaned over. That's freaky, Mystic Meg. It looks real. Walking again, we talked and laughed, swinging our plastic carrier bags. On the sun-streaked pavement, a toddler weevils. Bees hovered above the flower beds. Beth was at the window of Dorothy Perkins, looking at sequin tops. A red sign said, sale up to 50% off. We all walked in. Beth and Lisa, headed for the sale display. I'll catch you up, I said. Alone, I looked at jewellery and hair clips, holding them up to my head. In the mirror, a wide-eyed woman was reflected behind me. She had a phone to her ear. Bomb, she shouted. There's a bomb, get out. Everyone get out. Splinters burst through my chest, my eyes glazed. A woman beside me said, oh, mummy, mummy, as she clipped her toddler into the pram. My breath felt stuck. In the blurry shop, I couldn't see Beth and Lisa. Heading for the seal display, an arm pulled me back. Come on, said Beth, there's a bomb scare. And my eyes cleared as she took my sweaty hand. We didn't run because the bombs in Belfast were always bomb scares. They're never real, said Beth. All the time we had to leave Belfast, holding our dad's hands. Thank you for being good girls, he always said. And on the drive home, we'd stop to get sweets. The next thing I remember is the milk. The floor vibrated, a woman screamed and dropped a glass milk bottle. A huge vine ripped the air and I fell into Beth and Lisa. Glass smashed, shelves crashed, people fell to the ground. My whole body trembled. The woman who dropped the milk was screaming, screaming, screaming. Then it was quiet. I felt underwater, like I couldn't breathe, like my heart was really loud. Lisa's hair was over her face. She was saying something, but I couldn't make her out. Round our Nike trainers was a pool of milk with shards of broken glass. Multicoloured gobstoppers rolled into the milk. A tiny bee was drowning. I can't remember what happened between Dorothy Perkins and the bomb or anything else about that day. Before the bomb, the details are weirdly vivid. 
but afterwards, nothing. My mind wiped clean like an etch-a-sketch. The last thing I remember is that poor wee bee crawling around in circles. Its yellow and black fur was soaked in milk, its little legs going like crazy. Thank you so much. That was, yeah, electrifying. Oh, thank you. <laughs> the words of your voice. And again, it's a piece that I've read a few times. We had the privilege of seeing it develop. And um, yeah, I'm, I feel really moved actually just hearing that. Yeah. Um, yeah, thank you for sharing. Thank you so much. Um, and I should add that th this is a real experience and yeah. one in terms of this this kind of podcast and kind of circling back to, to that letter to Peter. Um, I wrote that letter directly to Peter. This piece was actually written in my mind indirectly for there, there were two twins that, that died in the Oma bomb, which happened um, a couple, if maybe a month later, a few weeks later. And it was sort of suspected that it, it was the real IRA that carried out both bombs. So I always felt this extremely strong affinity with um, these unborn twins who is, is very well known in terms of Irish history that there was a mother who was pregnant with twins who sadly died in, in the Oma bomb. And my sister and I as identical twin girls were in, experienced a bomb. No one was killed in, in, in the Banbridge bomb. So I consider us to be lucky in that respect. And yet I also feel this very strong affinity with these unborn twins who, you know, there's some similarities in, in that experience with the bomb being a, a much more powerful and, and deadly uh, attack. And really that, that piece at the time was written for those, those unborn twins. That was a, a sort of a personal or internal motivation for writing it because I always felt this, this affinity towards them. And writing this particular piece has really, I think, sort of cracked me open a little, little bit as a writer and helped me to embrace both the Northern Irishness of, of my voice, but also just certain aspects of, of myself. And um, some of the new stuff that I'm working on at the moment, I think, is possible because I wrote this, this piece directly from you know, my own kind of childhood experience and, and memory and came to a point where as a writer, I, I was able to trust myself that my own experience might be of interest to other people and that there was value to my voice. I don't think I had that really until my thirties. And, and I think reading other Northern Irish writers helped me to see the potential value in, in my own voice and I think my, my writing has become richer and I certainly feel that I when I sit down at the desk now I feel lighter within myself and I can enjoy the process of writing as opposed to this right now I have to sit down and write and be in writer's mode and almost you know I think I approached it in a more formal way possibly in my 20s and now there's just quite a nice continuity between how I'm speaking to you now and how maybe later on today I might take up my notepad or start writing. It's just the same. It's all just, it's just me. And there's so much that is to do with self-acceptance. And I think we, as you know, anyone who's a writer or a creative person should trust in the value of their own voice and, you know, do, do it for yourself initially and um, enjoy it. But always with, a, you know, one eye to the reader's enjoyment too. But yeah, thank you, thank you for, for sharing and and yeah, I feel like it we've come to quite a nice like neat circle somehow. But this idea, I I think of writing being a kind of conduit or way for us to tune into ourselves, tune into the world, connect, and it is does sort of start with ourselves in a way, and just learning to trust that intuition learning to trust that we we have something to say that that may even just connect with ourselves but hopefully others as well um, and I think 
Yeah, that's such a, a valuable lesson that writing has taught me. It's not about kind of producing something that might wow loads of people or trying to be the cleverest version of myself or the sort of most interesting version of myself. It, it's just about being ourselves. <laughs> I completely agree. And, and I listened to a really uh, lovely interview with the Northern Irish writer Lucy Caldwell, who I mentioned earlier. Um, and she talked about how if you're a writer fundamentally that's usually because you process the world through writing and people will have different ways or mediums of, of kind of processing the world but for me personally I process the world through writing through writing or my life experience through writing and she said in this interview it doesn't really matter if you're if you're published or um really if you're sharing your work it's about continually nourishing your work and giving it life and adding to it and just getting your own enjoyment from it really mm. and yes if you finish something and you share it with other people and they then get enjoyment from it brilliant but in order to get the words on the page really you're a writer if if you write and it's um a very powerful way of connecting with yourself and I think getting a sense of progress in terms of your skill and fulfillment you know we all know about the idea of the shitty first draft um every writer is extremely familiar with that and and if you can sit with that that mess and redraft it and trust in in the process and in yourself wow the feeling of satisfaction you can you can get from that it doesn't actually really matter if you share it with other people because it's it's a very powerful feeling thank you so much Emma I've enjoyed this conversation as I do all of our conversations it's been so wonderful to have you on the podcast it's my absolute pleasure thank you so much for inviting me thanks again to Emma and I hope you enjoyed our conversation please share it with anyone who might like it and a big thank you to everyone who's listened to this little series. I've learned so much from planning, interviewing and editing these podcasts. Until next time. Bye.